I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. It's often said that we live in a secular society in which religion has been marginalized. But is this really true? Religion understood as something of ultimate devotion never kind of went away and came back, but really migrated from the church to the nation state. So if you look at Uh, the advent of modernity, what you really see is the kind of pushing of uh, Christianity into the margins of Western society beginning in the 16th century and the eventual growth of this other kind of devotion to the nation and the state and the, the language of martyrdom gets transferred from the church to the state in the modern era. Evidence for the idea that the state becomes an object of devotion in the modern era is not hard to find. The founders of the American Republic were frank about the sacred aura with which they wanted to invest their new institutions of government. Ben Franklin called for a cult of the nation. Thomas Jefferson suggested preserving mementos that would function, he said, like the relics of saints. They would help nourish devotion to this holy body of the Union. A few years later, the leaders of the French Revolution would try to deify reason with temples and festivals dedicated to this new God. These are examples of what William Kavanaugh calls Migrations of the Holy. That's the title of a new book in which he argues that contemporary societies often misunderstand what religion is and where its power lies. Today on Ideas, William Kavanaugh takes up these issues as we continue our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion, by David Cayley. Nothing is more certain for the modern secular citizen than the desirability of separating religion and politics. The great separation, political theorist Mark Lilla calls it. Religion, so the story goes, was a source of oppression, obscurantism, and unending war until the state tamed this unruly power and put it in its place. Religion became a matter of private opinion. This is, in many ways, the founding myth of modern society. But William Kavanaugh thinks that the story of how the secular state saved us from religion is a fairy tale, and a fairy tale with an agenda, the legitimation and aggrandizement of state power. William Kavanaugh is professor of theology at DePaul, a Catholic university in Chicago, and the author of The Myth of Religious Violence, a book that retells the story of how the state put an end to religious violence and rethinks the received wisdom on the subject. I talked with him recently and asked him first about the origins of the modern state. The word state is used in different ways, and in one way it means any kind of larger-than-local government. And so you have people talking about church-state relations in the 4th century and things like that. In the more precise meaning of the term, state is a modern creation. It means in modernity the idea that there is a kind of abstract sovereign 
governing center that overrides local governments within a certain territory. And so when the word first gets used in the late medieval era, it refers to the state of the ruler, and it's a personal sort of idea. And the way that uh, political authority works in the medieval era is not territorial as such. So if a person were caught doing a crime in a certain territory, you'd have to find out who, where they're from and who their allegiance is to in order to know what law would apply in their case. And the way that um, these loyalties overlapped in the medieval era is very different from what you have in modernity. So what you have in modernity then, the rise of the state, is the rise of a central power which is abstracted from the person of the ruler and is bound to a certain territory and all other governments are um, subject to it within that territory. And that's something new. That's something that you just don't find before. And so talking about the state in that sense before the modern era is an anachronism. And so one of the things that this historical analysis does, again, is to help kind of unthink the inevitability of the state. It's not something that is natural in a sense. It's a creation of 16th, 17th century Europe. William Cavanaugh thinks that the rise of the state in early modern Europe was largely a matter of monarchs centralizing and expanding their power and of the new technologies that allowed this power to be expressed and extended more effectively. But all new institutions need to give themselves a compelling story, which rises above the somewhat grubbier facts of the matter. And the story the state gave itself, Kavanaugh says, portrayed a human condition in which opposed interests and entrenched opinions generated a chronic violence which only a strong central authority could control. You have Hobbes, for example, in the 17th century, coming up with this creation myth of uh, there's a state of nature in which we're all running around killing each other, and then something has to kind of step in to stop this war of all against all. And that then means that uh, each individual sort of gives their will over to the will of a kind of centralized sovereign who then, through the threat of violence, uh, prevents us from killing each other, and that's how we gain our liberty. And this doesn't have any basis in historical fact. It's a creation myth in the same ways that uh, maybe the first couple chapters of Genesis or the Babylonian creation story of the Enuma Elish are creation myths. What really happens, I think, and here I'm following uh, historians and sociologists like Charles Tilley, what really happens is it's just the kind of final resolution of a grab for power by civil authorities over ecclesiastical authorities. And so Tilly says, war made the state and the state made war. It's basically a more efficient way of monopolizing uh, violence within a society. Do you put any stock in the idea that the state is the unitary and initially absolutist state is a necessary bridge? to modern democracy, or that it's in any sense civilizing or engendering a common good? It certainly can, um, and in some cases it does. 
But I think we just need to be wary about that. I mean, I, in some ways, I overstate my arguments by being too critical and too negative. But what I'm trying to do is undo very common myths that see it as our sort of savior from a kind of prior violence. And I think that's just silly, that if you look at the historical record, the state is born in violence and that uh, the so-called wars of religion are in fact primarily wars over state building. And so to undo this myth, uh, I think sometimes I overstate the negative uh, about it, but I think it's a very important step to begin to see that the state is not our savior in the way that it's often presented in the civics textbooks. The idea of the state as our savior depends on there being a foil, a contrast, something that the state saves us from. And that something, as William Kavanaugh has been arguing, is religion. But what is religion? William Kavanaugh thinks that the term, as we understand it today, is a modern invention, which was under construction, so to speak, during the 16th and 17th centuries, invented as a foil for the ascendant state. Over time, the existence of this new thing became a certainty, something so obvious and unquestionable, Kavanaugh says, that people are sometimes scandalized when he mentions the title of his book, the myth of religious violence. I tell people the title and they look at me as if I'm, you know, crazy as if this is the sequel to my book, The Myth of the Spherical Earth or something like that, you know. It's just such a common idea that there's something called religion out there which has this tendency to promote uh, violence, an inherent tendency to promote violence. And the myth, of course, depends on the uh, positing of something else to compare religion to. And so to say that religion has this tendency to produce violence means that there must be something that's not religion which has less of a tendency to promote violence. And of course, that something else is the secular. And the secular saves us from this inherent craziness of religion. And so the whole myth depends on this idea of a very sharp distinction between the religious and the secular. And so what I'm questioning is the idea that this distinction is an essential distinction. I think it's a distinction that is created by modern secular society, and it's not, it's an invention, and it's not a sort of recognition of an essential distinction between two categories of human endeavor. And so really where the rubber hits the road then is the idea that so-called secular things are things that people can and do take as seriously as things that are called religious and can and do kill for them, and including people can and do kill for secularism. This, I think, in some ways is the story of American foreign policy over the course of the 20th century. The great evangelical of the 20th century is not Billy Graham, it's Woodrow Wilson. And the whole idea that we need to make the world safe for democracy and open elections and open markets. And this is the idea that has driven American foreign policy over the 20th century, the idea that if those crazy retrograde people over on the other side of the world can't come to see the superiority of uh, liberalism, then we need to bomb them into the higher rationality. In William Kavanaugh's view, 
violence committed in pursuit of secular goals, bombing people into the higher rationality, belongs for modern persons to a different register than violence in the name of religion. We see violence as inherent in religion. We don't, in the same way, see it as inherent in secular ideology. The power of this distinction, Kavanaugh says, rests on the story that has been told for hundreds of years about the so-called wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. The story, in brief, is that the Protestant Reformation touched off more than a century of warfare, which culminated in the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648. What ended the violence was the Peace of Westphalia, a treaty by which secular power checked religious discord, divided Europe into sovereign states, and began the process by which religion would eventually become a private affair. It's modern liberalism's foundational myth, Kavanaugh says. It's a creation story. It's the Genesis story of liberalism. The idea is that suddenly in the 16th century, you have Catholics and you have Protestants for the first time, and they can't stand religious difference, and so they begin killing each other, and then the state steps in as a peacemaker. The liberal state steps in as peacemaker and kind of privatizes religion, and then everything is fine and peaceful, and this is the genius of Western society, and this is something that Muslims have yet to learn because they haven't had this experience uh, yet. That's the myth, and, and historically, it's almost completely incoherent. It's just plain wrong. In the first place, the wars of religion, the, the Treaty of Westphalia, does not usher in the liberal nation state. You really don't get uh, liberalism for another 150 years. What you get instead is absolutism uh, in that era. And so that's one way that the myth is just completely false. But what you also see when you look at the historical record is that you have Catholics killing Catholics and Protestants killing Protestants and Catholics and Protestants collaborating in the so-called wars of religion. And so you might look at this and say, well, these are exceptions, but they're more than just exceptions. In the case of the Thirty Years' War, which is kind of the poster child for this idea of religious uh, violence and wars of religion, it's basically a war between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons, the two kind of great Catholic dynasties of Europe. And so that at least has to be a significant qualifier to the narrative of the wars of religion of Catholics killing Protestants and so on. So historians begin to look at this and recognize this fact and then say, well, maybe it wasn't just religion. Maybe it was about politics or economics or social causes or something like that. And so then you, you get, um, over the course of the 20th century, you get historians kind of lining up on either side, some saying, no, it's really religious, and others saying, no, it's really political. But the more you look at the concept of religion and politics, you discover that there simply weren't these kinds of distinctions being made in the 16th and 17th century, at least until towards the end of this era. So the idea that you can neatly separate out religious from political in these wars is itself an anachronism. The distinction between religion and politics is really a product of the wars and is not at the basis of the wars themselves. So Jose Casanova has called these wars, he said they really ought to be called 
the wars of um, European state uh, creation. And I think that's exactly right. What's primarily at stake in these wars is the, the attempt to kind of create a centralized state, especially in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, over against the resistance of local nobles and other forms of kind of uh, local governance. And so um, the idea that the state is the peacemaker that comes in and solves the violence is entirely false. The state is really at the source uh, of of the violence, the cause and not the solution to the violence, the state-making elites that Charles Tilley is talking about as kind of a protection racket. Were there not some outbreaks of genu- what one could genuinely call religious violence, the massacre of the Huguenots, let's say? Well, there's certainly cases where Catholics uh, are killing Protestants and Protestants are killing Catholics. There's no question about that. But the question is whether or not you can say, well, that's religious as opposed to political or as opposed to economic or something like that, when you just don't have these kinds of distinctions. And so what you really have are two, uh, at least two, more more than that, kind of different theopolitical visions of how society ought to be organized. And so Francis I cracks down on the Calvinists in the Placards Affair in, I think it's 1530-something, 1536 or something. And it's ostensibly about Eucharistic doctrine. But the idea that Francis I really cares that much about Eucharistic doctrine is just not clear. He's concerned, of course, with the effects that this has on the social order because the Eucharist, of course, is not a religious doctrine in the way that we think about it. The Eucharist is political. It's a way of talking about the body politic as participating in the body of Christ and so on. And so the idea that you can separate out religious from political at the time is just an anachronism. In the incident that William Cavanaugh is referring to here, the so-called affair of the placards in France in the 1530s, posters appeared in public places denouncing the idea that Christ is really and truly present in the bread that is eaten during the ritual meal that Christians call, variously, Mass, or Communion, or the Eucharist. The king, Francis I, took immediate action. In Paris, a Corpus Christi procession was held. This was a traditional pageant in which the consecrated bread, the host, as it's also called, was displayed and venerated. But in the Paris procession, Francis himself appeared under the canopy where the host would normally have been. The statement couldn't have been clearer. Just as Christ was present in the Mass, so God was present in the King. Politics and religion at this period weren't just entangled as if they were separate things that had gotten mixed up together. They were still indistinguishable, different aspects of a single reality. And Francis's substitution of his own body for the body of Christ, Kavanaugh says, wasn't unique. There's a whole uh, interesting book on Elizabeth I and the way that she kind of replaces the host in these sort of processions. 
it transfers Eucharistic uh, imagery onto the monarch as the kind of creator of the sovereign body. Uh, and that's exactly the story that I'm trying to tell. That's what I mean by the migration of the holy, is the way that the state does not at all, it's not at all the liberal state that comes about from the wars of religion. What you have instead are these absolutist divinized states. I mean, the culminating in the reign of Louis Fourteenth in France is probably the most prominent example. But this all begins in the, the 15th century, maybe even earlier than that, well before the Reformation, well before you have any distinction between Catholics or Protestants. And so that's really, I think, at the heart of the story. Kings and queens have always claimed what the Chinese called the mandate of heaven and the Latin West called the divine right of kings. For the monarch to substitute his body for the body of Christ was something new. Jesus had said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. St. Augustine, in the 5th century, had put forward the idea of the two cities, the city of God and the city of man. The high Middle Ages knew the doctrine of the two swords, one temporal, one spiritual. But the modern state, beginning in the 16th century, began to bid for exclusive authority. The king, in England, became the head of the church. Religion, as we know it, was what emerged from this struggle. It's not some universal essence, some practice that people everywhere have followed. It's a modern idea, which consolidates what's left over when the state succeeds in establishing an exclusive and exhaustive jurisdiction over the territories it administers. A residual private freedom to believe what I like about what come to be qualified as spiritual matters. That this is what religion is comes to be taken for granted during the heyday of the nation-state. But in our time, Kavanaugh says, some scholars have begun to realize just how limited and historically conditioned this definition is. Wilfred Cantwell Smith, a great Canadian scholar, who wrote the book, uh, his book in 1962, The Meaning and End of Religion, does a kind of genealogy of the concept of religion, and he finds that there is no concept of religion as we understand it until uh, the modern period, and then only in the West or in places that have had contact with the West. So it's a creation that comes about in early modern Europe, and then it gets exported to the rest of the world. And so you find that in all of these accounts of European explorers, their first encounters with the natives out in the rest of the world, they report back with remarkable consistency that the natives have no religion at all. And it's only then when they're colonized that the term religion comes to be applied to what they do. And you see that it has really interesting political uses. And there's a whole raft of scholarship that's being done on this uh, right now. And so you look at Hinduism, for example. Uh, the first use of the word Hinduism comes about in 1829. You have Hindus before then, but not Hinduism. And it becomes a religion over the course of the 19th century during British colonization. And the basic, basically the way it works is that you take everything it means to be Indian 
everything that we would include in religion and politics and art and culture and economics and so on. And you make that into a religion. And so to be Indian is to be private and to be British is to be public. And that's what happens when you make Hinduism into a religion. And for that reason, you have people in the BJP party in India today, the main kind of Hindu nationalist party, that refuse to call Hinduism a religion precisely because that marginalizes it and makes it something which is essentially private uh, and trivializes it in a way. John Esposito, the great scholar of Islam, says that to call Islam a religion is already to label it as an abnormal religion because religion is something separate from politics and Muslims don't have this kind of sharp distinction between religion and politics. And so even to call Islam a religion is automatic to, automatically to kind of label it a, an abnormal religion. What are the hallmarks in your view of this modern concept of religion? The modern concept of religion is the idea that there are certain things, certain forms of worship that are inherently non-rational. And precisely because it's non-rational and a matter of personal preference and not subject to rational adjudication, precisely because of that, it ought to be kept separate from public things like uh, the way we organize ourselves as a society and so on. And therefore, places like Islamic societies where they don't have this sharp distinction are prone to irrationality and violence because they don't understand this basic fact of human life, which is that religion is something separate from everyday life. To be modern on William Cavanaugh's account here, is to divide the world up into two distinct realms, a public secular sphere in which things are judged rationally according to agreed standards of evidence and argument, and a private religious sphere in which irrational opinion and existential decision hold sway. This was the scheme proposed by the Enlightenment, contain religion and reason will govern public affairs. It's a way of looking at things that has been badly battered, as the dreams of secular reason have too often turned into nightmares. And yet, it's a picture that Kavanaugh thinks still holds us captive, particularly in our view of other cultures and peoples. There's a wonderful book by a political scientist, uh, Roxanne Eubin, called Enemy in the Mirror, and she talks about the creation of these themes of rationality and the way that they're used in Western views of the modern Islamic world. And the reason she calls the book Enemy in the Mirror is because there's a way in which we sort of project all of our kind of own fears and irrationalities onto this other. And so it's a species of Orientalism, you know, as Edward Said would talk about this kind of creation of a dichotomy between the rational and peace-loving West and the irrational, um, you know, inherently violent and crazy East. And so we get scripted into these myths, and they have 
tremendously destructive effects, I think, because we can't understand others as authentically other. We can't imagine that there's any alternative to either theocracy or liberal democracy in the Muslim world. They either, you're either going to have craziness and theocracy or Saudi Arabia is going to need to look like Canada. And it precludes this idea that there are all sorts of other kinds of rationality and other kinds of political arrangements that can be workable. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today's program with theologian William Cavanaugh continues our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion, by David Cayley. In books like Migrations of the Holy and The Myth of Religious Violence, William Cavanaugh has argued that the idea of religion as private belief is a construction of the modern state, and as such, reflects the state's interests. It follows that religion, for him, is neither an innocent nor a universal category, but something more like a scapegoat, a place where secular society can project and hide its own violence and irrationality. He's also suggested that the modern state is a new site of the holy, the sovereign God reborn in the sovereign state. His purpose in making these arguments is to divest the state of its sacred aura and open up the possibility of a reimagining and reconfiguring of the space in which we live. As things currently stand, we imagine this space as everywhere the same, with all local peculiarities plowed under by the universal rule of the state and the market. But this idea that we live in a unitary and homogeneous space called society is originally produced, according to Kavanaugh, by the power of the state. What happens with the rise of the state is that for the first time you have something called society. You have a unified, bounded arena over which the state presides. And so in that sense, the state creates civil society. And so it's not the case that it's the other way around, that all these groups kind of get together and decide how are we uh, going to be governed. I mean, what, what happens then is that you create this kind of one unitary society where in medieval, oh, I'm sorry, I was just about to say medieval society. So in Christendom, in medieval Christendom, what you have is not society. What you have are societates. You have different societies that sort of overlap, but are very much kind of autonomous, uh, and not in the kind of uh, way of being independent, but in the way of not kind of receiving their being from something else. And then what you have in the modern era is the legal recognition of the state's right to grant recognition to all subsidiary societies. And through that mechanism, you get the creation of a one unitary uh, society. There's a lot of interesting uh, historical work that was done on this in the late 19th and early 20th century by Maitland and Gierke and the, and the people called the English pluralists, and they wanted to sort of return to an idea 
of the local associations of kind of spontaneous human association having their own sort of integrity and then kind of creating a very limited state which would um, be a sort of pluralist state um, which would be a kind of coordinator amongst the different associations rather than um, what in fact happens in legal theory and in fact, which is that the state reserves the right to recognize the existence of all of these intermediary associations. And then what happens, what you see happening uh, increasingly over the course of the 19th and the 20th and into the 21st century is what uh, Michael Hart calls the withering of civil society and the continual loss of actual power and and purchase of these intermediary associations. And so you're left um, with an enormous state and the individual and not much of real power in between the two. You can see that very clearly in the United States and the loss of power of the labor unions, for example. Modern society is a creature of the state, William Kavanaugh says. Other associations and collectivities exist but they exist by permission of the state and under its rules. This creates an imaginary, an imagined condition in which the power of the state completely suffuses society, where we all live, you might say, on the same grid. The market operates in the same way and is increasingly indistinguishable from the state to the point where many think that the regime under which we live is properly described as a market state. Social space under such a regime is simple and uniform. There can be no inconsistent or overlapping authorities or jurisdictions. William Kavanaugh wants to foster what he calls complex space. When I talk about complex space, what I'm talking about is the kind of society where there isn't one way of organizing society, which then takes precedence over all of the others. But there are all of these kind of alternative spaces which escape the logic of state and market and create local forms of community and translocal forms of community that don't have the same sort of violent and homogenizing effects that state and market often do. And so the idea of the fair trade movement, for example, is something that I talk about in my book, uh, Being Consumed. And this is an attempt of local people to set prices in the way that, at least theoretically, in medieval society it worked, where you set a price not based on how much the seller can get or how much the buyer can not give, but on something like a principle of justice where the price is set on the basis of what will contribute to the flourishing of all of the parties involved. And so consumers of fair trade coffee pay voluntarily pay more so that people that are producing it in Guatemala can have a decent life and provide milk for their children and things like that. And so there's a logic that has just escaped the logic of the market altogether. 
and you've created um, local forms of community. And it doesn't have to be restricted to one locality, but it's a kind of translocal form of community where um, a local community in one place is caring for a local community um, in another part of the globe. And that's what I mean, um, part of what I mean when talking about complex space. Uh, Another thing that I mean is talking about, in particular, the church being a different place of discernment when it comes to violence and war. The example that really kind of lights my fire is the 2003 Iraq War, when you had, just speaking from the Catholic world, you had the Pope and bishops worldwide raising serious questions about whether this upcoming attack would be a just war or not. And then you had certain Catholic commentators uh, making the case that Catholics ought to respect the Pope's opinion, but really it's the president's decision to make whether or not we go to war. And in fact, that's, that's of course what happened. War was declared as everybody knew it would, and Catholics and other Christians uh, went and fought it. So there you have an example of simple space where space has been reduced to the relationship between the state and the individual. And the idea of complex space is the idea that there are other sorts of loyalties and other kinds of associations that can have real power in ways that are not simply captured by the logic of either individual choice or loyalty to the whole, to the the nation state. And so what if you had significant numbers of Catholics uh, in this case saying, uh, this is not a just war, and we're going to sit this one out. So I'm not even talking about pacifism. I'm just talking about a a kind of coherent application of the just war idea. The just war is usually raised in order to justify war. And in theory, what it's supposed to do is say, well, this war is just and this one's not, and we'll fight this one, but we're not going to fight that one. It never works that way. But what if it actually worked that way? It would have tremendously uh, radical consequences if suddenly you had large numbers of, in the case that I'm citing, Catholics deciding to sit out the war. And then you've got the creation of a sort of third political space, which is not simply under the logic of the nation state, but you've got people making these decisions based on gospel criteria and not on criteria of access to cheap oil or the uh, necessity to spread democracy and open markets to the rest of the world and so on. During the modern era, religion was, in theory, privatized. It never really worked this way in practice, from the campaign to abolish slavery to the American civil rights movement. Social change has again and again originated in Christian churches. But the idea continued that religion was inherently non-political. It concerned spiritual matters. William Cavanaugh is challenging this idea. For him, the church is and must be a political community. In my imaginings, it's a place where alternative spaces of charity and justice are created as a way of 
worshiping God and creating fellowship amongst God's creatures. And so that means actual creation of different sorts of politics and different sorts of economics, oftentimes in cooperation with others. It doesn't have to be something which is limited to within the church's uh, borders, but it's something that helps to kind of create these spaces where economy, for example, is not simply based on dog-eat-dog, but is based on a vision of uh, the flourishing of people. One of the ways I've been thinking about this is through the opera Ariadne of Naxos. I was trying to explain my position to a class of seminarians one time, and one of them said, oh yeah, that sounds like Strauss's opera Ariadne of Naxos. So I went out and read it. I haven't seen it yet. And it illustrates what I'm trying to do. Ariadne of Naxos is the richest man in Vienna, is throwing a big party, and he's going to have a tragedy, the Ariadne legend, and then followed by a a kind of frivolous comedy with harlequins and buffoons and so on, followed by fireworks. And the director of the tragedy is, is enraged that his very serious work is going to be followed up by this, you know, buffoonery. But then it gets even worse when the major domo comes in and says, hey, look, the fireworks start exactly at nine o'clock, so we're going to need to do the tragedy and the comedy on the stage at the same time. And so what happens then is it starts out with this tragedy, and then the comic actors come in and kind of divert the action into a comedy, and so it ends well. This is the image that I use for what the church ought to do, that the church ought to be the, the comic actors who see that the world is not ultimately dog-eat-dog, but ultimately there's a comic story that's being told by God that in the end things work out okay. So that the story that Hobbes is telling where it's really just a war of all against all and you enact this violence in order to prevent us from killing each other, that really at the basis of reality is something much more beautiful. And so what the church does is not act on a separate stage, but acts on the one stage of history in an attempt to divert the tragedy into a comedy. And that's my image for what the church ought to do. Of course, what the church actually does is oftentimes not anything like that. So there's a definite distinction between is and ought that that has to be made and recognized. But it's precisely, I think, in our kind of repentance for our own sin that we can become convinced that we're not good enough to use violence and so forswear it and turn into peacemakers instead out of the recognition of our own sin. In Richard Strauss's opera, Ariadne auf Naxos, William Cavanaugh's paradigm of the relation between the church and the world, there are two plays, but only one stage. And this is the critical point. The life of the church bears on this world, not some other. When Christians gather, the order or form in which they celebrate is called liturgy. Its heart in the Catholic Church is the Eucharist, the communion meal of bread and wine at which Christ is remembered. Liturgy, it's important to say, is a creative act. 
it doesn't just point at something that is already there. It brings that something into existence. Eating together creates the church as a community. But when liturgy is understood in this way, one can see that it's not restricted to churches or to religious communities more generally. The state, too, has its liturgies, from which the beliefs of the citizens are generated. There's a chapter in Kavanaugh's most recent book called The Liturgies of Church and State. It's an idea he's been developing ever since his first book, Torture and Eucharist, was published in 1998. I spent uh, a little over two years living in a poor area of Santiago, Chile, during the Pinochet regime there in the 1980s. So I met people who were tortured and people who had relatives disappeared. And when I came back, I worked at the law school at the University of Notre Dame in the Civil and Human Rights Department. And my job was to develop a database for all of the data on human rights abuses that the church had collected. Uh, under the military regime. And so I read account after account of torture. And from that, then my doctoral work came. And what became clear is that torture is not about what it is on TV, which is the collecting of information to save lives. You know, this is the, the TV show 24, where the hero Jack Bauer will torture somebody to get the code to save the you know airplane from being downed by the terrorist or so on. That in almost all cases, it doesn't have anything to do with that. But it's more about this kind of operation on bodies, on individual bodies, in order to discipline the body politic in a certain way, especially through fear and anxiety and silencing people. And so what was interesting to me about that was this kind of operation on bodies that has this kind of symbolic social effect and seeing the Eucharist as being a kind of parallel to this in some ways. It's this uh, operation on bodies which has this symbolic social effect. And so that's why I describe torture as being this kind of anti-liturgy in some ways. But what's really the, the kind of larger point, I think, that's interesting to me about this is the way that in some ways it breaks down this dichotomy between religious and secular, because there are all these sort of secular liturgies that are going on out in the world. And so the what's happening in these different spaces is not essentially different. When you see the rituals that surround the American flag, for example, uh, the way that it can't touch the ground, and if it is, it's supposed to be burned and or buried and not just thrown away, and all of these kinds of reverential rituals. And so the larger point then becomes interesting uh, to me of there's all these sorts of liturgies that bodies are scripted into in the so-called secular world, and sometimes they're benign and sometimes they're malignant, and there are parallels with the ways that bodies are scripted into these dramas in Christian liturgy as well. Conceiving the practice of torture, or flag handling, as a liturgy breaks down the barrier between the political and the religious. It challenges the claim that secular liturgies are in some essential way distinct from religious practices. 
and by the same token, it allows the church to emerge from its confinement in the ghettos of private spirituality and to assume what William Cavanaugh considers its rightful place as a public and political body. When the church is thought of in this way, Cavanaugh says, it can be seen as a model of the proper relationship between the universal and the local. It affirms a universal truth and a single creation, but comes to life only through its embodiment in local communities and traditions. It shows a way to think globally that does not destroy or denature the local. And this fostering of what earlier he called complex space is critical, he says finally, in the current age of globalization. What people often mean by globalization is the reduction of the particular to the universal. And so it's a way of seeing the world as one in ways that oftentimes tend to subsume particular differences into more universal categories. And so what oftentimes happens is that when the particularities of different localities and traditions and ways of life become commodities for the international market, then they become mere choices. And in becoming mere choices, then you've kind of killed what makes them particular and distinctive and makes them actually have a claim on people. And this is a great heresy in our culture because we think that everything ought to be available, that this is what freedom is about, that 24-7 we can go on the internet and get whatever we want. But in some ways, it kind of binds us with a certain sort of invisible chains, I think, because when everything is available, then nothing really matters in a sense. And so we become tourists of experiences and consumers of religious experiences, for example. This is one of the problems that I find with teaching my students oftentimes, is that you can make the most outrageous claims and they can agree with them so easily because it just doesn't have any purchase on their life. It isn't a sort of vocation that they're being called to, it's just another choice to be made. And so the idea that you could actually be called by something and that something could have a claim on you is an idea that we tend to find as restricting our freedom. But um, I think it's the only thing really that produces saints and martyrs and people that change the world is the idea that there's something, a burning sort of call that has an authority over them that they can't resist. Implied in what you're saying seems to be the idea that many people of Christian backgrounds who now dine at the great spiritual smorgasbord and describe themselves as spiritual rather than religious would be better off going back to the rock from which they were hewn, so to to speak. (laughs) They might be. They might be. They ought to at least consider that uh, possibility. I mean, conversion experiences, I think, are real. And it doesn't mean that you're always stuck where you were planted. But a conversion experience is something quite different than changing clothes or just buying something new. 
and that seems to me to be something that we've lost. I, I've I've always wanted this is nobody will ever invite me to give a commencement address, of course, but I've always wanted to give a commencement address where I stand up and use the usual platitudes about going out and saving the world and then stop and say, okay, that's all BS. Don't pay any attention to that. That's what I'm supposed to say, but here's what I really think. The world has had enough of well-meaning American undergraduates going out and trying to change the world. Please don't go out and try to change the world. Go back home to your little town in Minnesota and find your identity and your life in a place where you can be planted and take root. And <laughs> and that, that of course, is why nobody will uh, invite me to, to give one of these kinds of addresses. On Ideas, you've listened to the third episode of our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Our guest was William Cavanaugh, a professor at DePaul University in Chicago. His most recent book is Migrations of the Holy, God, State, and the Political Meaning of the Church. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Liz Nage is our webmaster. For information on upcoming Ideas programs, visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter or link to the podcast of today's program. You can also join us on Facebook. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.